Amen. Thank you, everyone, for serving us and leading us to worship the Lord. Since we sang that song last week, I've been I've had that chorus in my mind. Uh, Praise the Lord; His mercies are more. What a great truth to have echoing in our in our hearts as we go through the week. Well, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter twenty-six. Matthew chapter 26, if you're using the Black Bibles uh, provided there, that's page 831. After many months, uh, we are going to resume our study through the Gospel of Matthew. (laughs) Uh, We're ready for the final section of Matthew's Gospel, chapters 26 through 28, which record the betrayal, arrest, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And the reason we stopped at the end of 25 when we did several months ago and now pick it up here in 26 is because you'll notice that chapter 26 does mark the beginning of a new section in the Gospel of Matthew. And we know that because it begins with these words. Look at verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings. Now that phrase has been Matthew's um, signature uh, way, I guess you'd say, throughout his gospel of, of marking a new section. Ma- Matthew will always include that phrase, well, let me back up, Matthew groups the teachings of Jesus together in, in long discourses, and then once that discourse of teaching is over, he'll begin the next section with that phrase, when Jesus had finished these sayings, and then that usually goes into part of his life, uh, some narrative section of, of Jesus' life and ministry. And so that's what's happening here in chapter 26. The previous chapters contained prolonged teaching about Jesus, uh, by Jesus about his return. And so here once again, Matthew transitions us, the reader, from a discourse of Jesus into this next section. However, this time there's something just a little different, a little extra. Matthew adds the word all. Notice it says, when Jesus had finished all these sayings. So Matthew adds that word all to his signature section marker, we could call it, because there's no more discourses that he's going to give us in in his gospel. No more discourses of Jesus' teaching recorded for us here. Christ's public teaching ministry has come to a close. We're moving toward now the final hours of our Lord's life. So I'm mindful of that as we... As we study this last section, 26 through 28, that um, really we approach these chapters as we should all of the Bible, certainly. But we approach these chapters with a sense of, of reverence, a sense of sobriety. Because we're going to be studying the, the sufferings of Christ. We're going to be considering what Jesus has done for us on Calvary. And then we're going to rejoice in the empty tomb. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to cover these last three chapters of Matthew, Lord willing, in a series that I'm calling The Suffering and, and Sovereignty of Christ. It's a lot of S sounds together. Isn't it? The Suffering and Sovereignty of Christ. We will witness Jesus suffer like no one else as we consider what he's doing in his sufferings, what's happening to him in his sufferings. We're going to see him suffer like no one before him as he atones for the sins of his people. 
But as we consider that, we'll also notice that Jesus is no helpless victim here. He is in complete control as he has set his face to go toward Jerusalem. And now as he is in Jerusalem and he's willingly laying down his life as a ransom for many. So that's why I wanted to kind of have those two themes intertwined in this last section. The suffering and sovereignty of Christ. So this morning our text is Matthew chapter 26 verses 1 through 16. And I'd ask the congregation to stand with me please again for the reading of God's word. Please follow along as I read. Matthew 26, 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Thanks be to God for his word. Please be seated. The title of the sermon today is Posture on the Death of Christ. And I know for many of us, when we hear that word posture, we have memories of our, our mother exhorting us to stand up straight, right? Kind of like I probably need to do now. But that's not what I'm talking about this morning when I use that word posture. Webster's Dictionary records that one definition of the word posture is a conscious behavioral attitude. Right? So your posture or your, we could say, we probably more often say your position towards something. It describes your attitude and your behavior for it. Right? And if you think about that word and or those terms, attitude and behavior, it makes sense that those would be connected, doesn't it? Because your attitude towards something sooner or later is going to be reflected in your behavior toward it as well. Right? Your attitude comes out, or as we say often in in counseling and discipling, right, what's in the heart comes out. So with all that being said, what I want us to think about today as we study uh, the text is what is what is your posture or what is your position toward the death of Christ? In other words, what is your attitude and behavior toward the death of Christ? When you hear talk about the cross, when you hear talk about the death of Christ, What is your response? Are you indifferent? Are you filled with gratitude? Do you merely give mental assent to the the fact of the death of Christ? Or is it something that you are trusting in? 
Is the death of Christ significant to you? Or would you have to admit it's something you rarely give a second thought? We're considering our posture on Christ's death because as I studied the text this week, and again, this whole section of Matthew is is moving us toward the death of Christ, and, and we see it here in these first 16 verses, the death of Christ is front and central. This morning, we'll work our way through verses 1 through 16 under different postures, specifically different actions that these Different groups of people are taking concerning the death of Christ, toward the death of Christ. And those actions, and we'll, we'll kind of bring this all up at the end, but their, their actions are going to reveal their heart attitude toward Christ. So we'll work through this under four headings, four actions related to the upcoming death of Christ. Number one, Jesus declaring. Jesus declaring, chapter 26 begins with Jesus declaring to his disciples of his impending death. Look again at verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now for some time now, in Matthew's gospel, we've seen Jesus preparing his disciples for his death. Just by way of reminder and review, Matthew 16, 21 says, From that time, Jesus, this is right after uh, Peter gave his, his uh, confession that Jesus is the Christ, or yeah, that Jesus is the Christ, right? Matthew 26, 21, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Remember, it's like by God's grace that the, the eyes of the disciples had been opened to where they recognized that Jesus is the promised Messiah, but then Jesus was then trying to teach them and prepare them for what kind of Messiah he is, how he had come to deliver his people. So that was Matthew 16. The next chapter, Matthew 17, 22, says, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Again, in Matthew chapter 20, verse 18, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. So Jesus has been preparing the disciples for what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem so that they're not surprised when it takes place. And again, he's trying to teach them What he has come to do, what his mission is, it's not to overthrow the Romans. No, he's come to deliver them from their greater enemy of sin and death and Satan. And he'll do that by laying down his life as a ransom for many. So now here in Matthew 26, I mean, we're, we're, the time is short, right? And that's what Jesus is talking about. He again is, is declaring this to the disciples, but now he's revealing when his death is going to occur. Look again. At at verses 1 and 2, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. They're just two days away from the Passover and Jesus is telling them during this time he will be delivered up to be crucified. So Christ's death is no longer something that's kind of just happening down the road. The time has come. For Jesus to lay down his life. He says his death will happen during the Passover. Passover was um, 
It was celebrated together with a feast of unleavened bread, and together it was a seven-day festival, an annual week-long festival that the Jews celebrated in Jerusalem to commemorate God delivering them from slavery in Egypt, what we read about in the book of Exodus, right? And the central feature of this remembrance was the offering of the Passover lamb, whose shed blood back in the first generation of Israelites, right, the shed blood that, of the Passover lamb that they'd spread over the, the doorframe there had protected them from the wrath of God that fell on the Egyptians. And so it's appropriate now as we think about entering into the first century here, Jesus' day, it's appropriate that Passover is the time that God the Father has chosen for Jesus, who's the one to whom the Passover lamb and all the sacrifices pointed It's appropriate that it's during Passover time that God has chosen for Jesus to offer himself on the cross as the ultimate sacrifice to deliver his people from slavery to sin. And so here again in verse 2, we've seen this several times in Matthew, as as you just heard, Jesus uses his favorite title for himself, the Son of Man. Notice that? He says, the Son of Man will be delivered up. That's a... Reminder, that's a somewhat veiled reference to the one from Daniel chapter 7 to whom is given all authority from the ancient of days to rule forever. So Jesus is telling them, I'm going to be delivered up to be crucified. And that verb delivered up speaks of betrayal, which we're going to see in our uh, section today, right? And of being handed over. So, you know, there's really, the disciples at this point should be putting several pieces together. Others will be actively seeking to end Jesus' life. But again, Jesus declares all this to them beforehand so that they will not be surprised when it takes place. When it happens, yes, they're going to be very distraught, but they must not think that God's plan is somehow unraveling. No, this is all according to God's plan. Jesus is sovereignly approaching the cross. Jesus is obediently carrying out his Father's will. And so while Jesus, we see him declaring his upcoming death, we see secondly, then our second heading, leaders plotting. In verses 3 through 5, we see leaders plotting. Look at verse 3. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people, right? These are the religious leaders. These are part of the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling council. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, verse 4, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, again, through, through Matthew's gospel, we've seen increasing tensions between the religious leaders and Jesus. And matter of fact, this is not the first time the religious leaders have met to discuss whether, what, they're gonna, what they want to do to Jesus. At the end of chapter 21, they were looking for a way to arrest Jesus. But now here in 26, they're, they're devising a plan. They want to arrest Jesus and kill him. And notice they want to do this... Uh, Secretly, by stealth, or some translations say by trickery. But not they don't want to do it during the seven days of the Passover celebration. Why? Well, there's going to be lots and lots of people in Jerusalem. Um, estimates say that Jerusalem, during Passover, Jerusalem's population would increase fivefold. 
I mean, there was literally like a million people that would come in, <clears throat> excuse me, into Jerusalem. All the Jewish pilgrims from, who were spread all around would come back to Jerusalem to, to celebrate and commemorate the Passover and what God had done for them. So, it, I mean, the, the place is just busting at the seams. Not only are there a lot of people, but religious fervor is very high. Remember, there, people are, many are waiting and longing for the Messiah, at the, during this time especially. And the leaders know that Jesus is popular among many of the people. Though the religious leaders hate Jesus and they want to be rid of him, they're willing to wait because they know that Jesus is popular, especially, remember, all these pilgrims that have come. A lot of pilgrims have come from Galilee where Jesus has been doing the bulk of his ministry And so they've observed Jesus work miracles and cast out demons and teach with authority. And so many of them are convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. If you remember earlier that very week, many of those Galilean pilgrims had waved palm branches and shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As Jesus entered Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, they recognized that Jesus was fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, that he was the promised Messiah. And while many of them misunderstood the nature of his saving mission in Jerusalem, they at least believed that he was the promised king sent from God. So the religious leaders are kind of in a pickle, aren't they? They hate Jesus. They want to be rid of him. They're jealous of him. They don't believe he's the Messiah. But they know a lot of, they know a lot of the population does. But the religious leaders, they, they want to kill him. By and large, they've, they've rejected him as their Messiah. He doesn't, Jesus, for them, doesn't check all the boxes of what they thought the Messiah was to be. They're jealous of his popularity. They see Jesus as a threat to the, their authority and control, and so they want him dead. Now, are you noticing the, kind of the, the different time frames being discussed here? Jesus has said he would be killed in two days, or handed over and killed in two days, but the religious leaders, they're planning to wait at least nine days, right? They're saying, hey, let's, okay, Passover's two days away, let's wait till those seven days of Passover's over, then we'll take care of this. So they, they, want, it, they want it to happen as soon as possible, but they're willing to wait nine days at least for this, for, to arrest Jesus. Whose time frame do you think is going to play out? <laughs> Jesus's or, or the religious leaders? Jesus is right, of course. Man makes his plans, but God is sovereign, right? And God's plans cannot be thwarted. In two days, Jesus would be killed because it was God's will that Christ's death occur during the Passover. Again, indicating that Jesus is indeed the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. So we've got Jesus declaring, leaders plotting. Now verse 6 brings us to our third heading. Woman anointing. Woman anointing. Verse 6. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. Now when you look at the Gospels as a whole, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you see uh, two different anointings of Jesus by by a woman. Luke records Jesus being anointed by a sinful woman in Luke 7. And that took place in Galilee in the home of Simon the Pharisee. 
This here is a different occasion as this anointing is taking place in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper. And John 12 records that this anointing here that Matthew's talking about took place actually six days before the Passover when Jesus first arrived in Bethany. And so what's happening there is John, uh, out of all the gospel writers, John and his gospel in particular seems very concerned about getting the chronology right. Whereas some of the other writers, like Matthew and Mark, let's say, all this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they, they will take the accounts of Jesus and kind of organize them thematically to accomplish, you know, to make the point they're trying to make. And so that's what Matthew has done here. This actually happened a few days earlier, but Matthew's telling it about us now because he's talking about the coming death of Jesus. Verse 6 says, the anointing took place at the house of Simon the leper. No doubt Simon is no longer a leper because if he was, he would not be hosting a meal. Which again, the account in John 12 explicitly says a dinner was being served. It's kind of implied here in Matthew when it says they're reclining at table, right? So Simon's been healed, probably by Jesus, right? Um, But I guess, you know, because he had been a leper for so long, he just still kind of is known by that. Simon the leper, right? So maybe that was a badge he wore with honor because, you know, maybe it highlighted then the glory and power of, of Christ in, in healing him. John's account, account tells us that Lazarus, member whom Jesus had raised from the dead, is also at this meal along with his sisters Mary and Martha. So some speculate that maybe Simon was actually their father. You know, maybe this is the family home that they're all at. At any rate, during the meal... A woman anoints Jesus with very expensive ointment. John's account tells us that this woman was in fact Mary, who we presume to be the sister of Lazarus and Martha. So Mary is anointing Jesus with this very expensive ointment. And Mark tells us that the ointment was pure nard, which is a fragrant type of ointment made from the root of a plant which is found in India, which is what made it so rare and expensive. John's account tells us that the perfume was worth 300 denarii, which was close to a year's worth of wages for a common laborer at that time. So this is, again, very expensive, like Matthew says. This kind of possession was likely a family heirloom, which meant not only was it worth a lot of money, it probably had some sentimental value to it. And Mark's account, again, just just to kind of get our minds around the scene, tells us that before Mary could anoint Jesus with this ointment, she first had to break the flask, break the neck of the jar. So, I mean, this, this is, she's going all in with this, right? I mean, this is the time she's using it. She's not just kind of, oh, doing this and I'll save the rest for later. No, she's devoting it all to Jesus. She took the bottle, broke the neck so that she could pour the ointment profusely over Jesus' head. And I'm just picturing Mary doing this with deep emotion and gratitude. Imagine you're, you're at that table, probably you've, maybe you've already eaten or whatever, everybody's just kind of chilling, as we would say, right? And then Mary, that you hear this crack of the jar, and you see Mary pour this ointment, this, this special perfume all over Jesus' head, and then the beautiful aroma just starts wafting through, the, filling the room. This was a beautiful act of worship by Mary. 
This was her way of, of just expressing her love and devotion to Jesus. She, by God's grace, she had recognized that Jesus is the anointed one, the Christ, the promised king. So she's anointing Jesus' head with this perfume. Beautiful. Mary loved Jesus. She believed he was the son of God who had come into the world to save sinners. She'd seen Jesus raise her brother from the dead. She'd, she'd seen Jesus forgive her sins. And so she's responding with, with worship, with, with affection, with love and adoration for Jesus and faith in who he is. So it's a beautiful scene. But notice then, this, this beautiful scene gets interrupted, I guess you'd say, in verse 8 by the disciples' response to Mary's act of worship. Look at verse 8. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Here Mary's worshiping Jesus and expressing her love and devotion and faith in who he is. And and the disciples are, are scolding her, one of the accounts says. I think it was Mark's account. says they're scolding her. They're angry with her. They're indignant. That word means to flare the nostrils in anger. What are you doing, Mary? Why are you wasting that stuff? Don't you know how much that's worth? Don't you know we could have sold that and think of all the things the money could have been used for, all the poor that we could have helped with that money? Why this waste? Think about those words. They're not just insulting Mary, are they? Who else are they demeaning? Jesus. Why would you waste all of that on Jesus? The disciples evidently didn't regard Jesus as worthy of this extravagance. It's a waste to use that stuff on Jesus. See, in that moment, they're they're not thinking about who Jesus is, are they? That this is God in the flesh. Their creator, their sustainer, the one who holds their very life together who in great humility had left the glory of heaven and had come to to rescue them. He is the promised king. He's the one who had demonstrated his divine power over and over. Casting out demons and and wielding nature to do his bidding and and his authority in teaching and and rebuking the, the wicked rulers of the day. Was not Jesus worthy to be worshipped with all that they had? They shouldn't have been scolding Mary. They should have been getting in line behind Mary. Saying, you're right Mary, let's worship Jesus. Here's here's what I have. Let Let me offer that as an act of worship to Jesus. Here's my life, Jesus. I worship you. They should have been getting in line behind him. Acknowledging who he is. Jesus, you are worthy. You have, you're God. You're, you're the Son of God. You're the King. You've forgiven me of all my sins. You've called me to be your disciple. You've placed me in your eternal kingdom. But no, instead, their, their, their minds are set on earthly things in that moment. And John's account actually tells us that Judas was the primary objector. So I'm kind of picturing Judas being the one who's really agitated by this and kind of stirring up the others too, right? John also explains, by the way, in his account, why Judas 
was agitated. It wasn't because he cared about the poor, but because he was the, the money keeper and he would help himself to the money bag. So when he sees that being poured over Jesus, he's thinking, oh man, man, if she had given that to the ministry, I could have taken some of that for myself. But in the midst of the disciples' scolding and their, their anger, their idolatry, in the midst of all that happening, we hear a voice of support rising up, rebuking them and defending Mary in verse 10. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now again, we know, I mean, it's obvious from Scripture that Jesus cares very much for the poor. But here he's saying that there, were, there will always be opportunities to help the poor, but he would not be around much longer in the flesh. So time for showing him such devotion and worship in the flesh was running short. Interesting, Jesus says, Mary has done this to prepare me for, for burial. Right? We know spices and ointments were often administered on, on bodies before burial as an act of love and respect. So, Again, we know Mary was, was worshiping Jesus, was showing affection to him. Maybe she was the one person who kind of knew what was happening, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, she's been no doubt hearing a lot of Jesus' predictions and, and it, it, declaring to his disciples what's going to happen to him. And so perhaps, or we might even say likely, she realized what Jesus was about to do. That he was about to die. That he was about to lay down his life for her. Now again, how much of that she understood, I don't know. But Jesus is taking her loving act and he, he's turning it into a prophetic um, action. And what we do know is Mary commits a costly act of worship out of love and gratitude for Jesus. And Jesus defends her extravagance. He says it, what, she's done a beautiful thing. Reminds us how God inhabits our praise. He loves our worship, doesn't he? He says she's done a beautiful thing, and what she's done is going to be told throughout the world as the gospel is proclaimed, verse 13. So that's an interesting nugget there too, by the way. In defending Mary, Jesus declares that the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done will be proclaimed in the whole world. So Christ's assurance that the gospel will be preached throughout the world, it looks beyond his death, it looks beyond his burial, and it looks to the vindication of his resurrection. Because that's the gospel, that's the good news, right? The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That yes, Jesus died in the place of sinners. Taking the punishment that, that sinners like you and me deserved. Bearing the wrath of God so that all who believe would not have to bear it themselves. But Jesus did not stay dead. On the third day, he rose from the grave in victory over sin and death. He rose from the, the grave in vindication of who he is. That he is the Son of God. He is the promised Messiah. He is the Savior of all who believe. And so the gospel is that good news of what Jesus has done. 
how he lived and died and rose again, defeating sin and death. And, and it's the good news that, that sinners can be rescued from their sin. Everyone who turns from their sin and by faith embraces Jesus as Lord and Savior will be saved. They'll be forgiven. They'll be counted righteous in God's sight. That's the good news. And that good news is being proclaimed all around the world. Praise God. And so Jesus says, hey, this isn't just something we're doing here, right? This is, this is good news is going to be proclaimed throughout the world. The good news that Jesus has defeated sin and death. The, the good news that Jesus is alive and reigns now as Lord of heaven and earth. That he's at the Father's right hand. The good news that one day Jesus is returning to to gather his own, to judge his enemies, to defeat and eradicate sin once and for all. That's the good news that's being proclaimed. And again, the good news that you can be uh, rescued from sin, you can enter into God's eternal kingdom through faith in Jesus. So we've seen Jesus declaring, leaders plotting, Mary anointing, and contrasted then with Mary's costly love and worship is Judas, which brings us to our fourth and final heading, Judas betraying. Judas betraying, verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. We'll we'll talk more about this, Lord willing, as in the coming weeks, as we see the betrayal play itself out. But we see the 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 decision being made already here, don't we? The transactions already happened. Judas, likely stinging from Jesus' rebuke, goes to the chief priests, offering to deliver Jesus over to them for a price. They pay him 30 pieces of silver, so now Judas is looking for that opportunity, that right time, right? They want it done secretly, they don't want a big hubbub about it, so this is, I mean, they're probably tickled pink, right? This is great, we've got an inside man here who can deliver Jesus over to us in a at the, just the right time. Evidently, Judas had been growing increasingly disillusioned with Jesus. There's speculation, by the way, from his family name Iscariot that Judas might have had a zealot background. Likely, Judas had high hopes that Jesus was going to overthrow the Romans. But here now, Jesus keeps talking about suffering and dying. And, and, and you know, the more this goes on, Judas is probably seeing, like, wow, you know. Jesus is not turning out to be the Messiah I thought he was going to be. And again, we know from John's comment that Judas was a thief and a lover of money. And so he sees an opportunity to profit. I'm just, in his thinking, he's like, I'm, okay, Jesus is not doing what I thought he was going to do. But hey, I'm going to cut my losses and I've got a chance to, to profit from this. So things are moving forward quickly toward the death of Jesus. 
And this morning we've noted the different actions regarding the death of Jesus, which reflect the motives and attitudes of the hearts of the people doing those actions, right? I mean, again, just thinking about the four groups we saw there concerning Christ's upcoming death on the cross, you have Jesus declaring, so that shows he's sovereignly embracing God's plan out of obedience to his Father and love for his own. You see the leaders plotting, that shows their hatred and jealousy and unbelief concerning Jesus. You've got the woman anointing, which again, that was an act of Mary's love and devotion and and worship for her Lord. And you've got Judas betraying, showing his greed and evil and rejection of Jesus. So we've come full circle and I'll ask the question I began with. What's your posture toward the death of Jesus? When you hear about the death of Jesus, what's what's your response? Again, is it kind of indifference or boredom? Like, oh, really? We're talking about that again? Um, Or is it one of, like, just gratitude, praise? Is Is it something that you're, when you think about the death of Jesus... Is it something that, it's not just, okay, well, yeah, that was a, a kind of a significant event in history. Is it something that you are staking your, your eternal life on, that you've placed your faith and hope in? Well, what should our posture be toward the death of Jesus? As I thought about this and started looking at the scriptures, you know, I mean, I was just, the list was getting long, so I, 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 I I grouped some responses together kind of in in couplets here just to try to keep it brief and I'll I'll share them very quickly. Let me give you some biblical responses toward the death of Jesus. Number one, faith and hope. Faith and hope. We are trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. It's his perfect life and sacrificial death that pays for our sins and secures our righteousness. Remember, his death was substitutionary. He died in our place. So whenever we think or hear of the death of Jesus, let us continue to humbly trust in Christ's finished work as our only grounds for our right standing with God. And again, if you're here today and you've never thought about the death of Jesus that way, maybe you, again, just thought, well, it was, you know, it's kind of a significant event in history, or maybe it was was a, a, a good demonstration of love and sacrifice which that's true, but inadequate, inadequate to be saved. I urge you to understand that the death of Jesus is the single most important uh, event in history because it is the only thing that will save you from the wrath of God. It is the only thing (laughs) that will pay for your sins. By nature, we're all sinners before our Creator. And so we need a perfect substitute. We are, our good works are never good enough, the Bible says, to, to pay for our sins, to, to counterbalance all the, the, the debt we've incurred before a holy God. And so Christ's death is our only hope. But it is a sure hope. Because he is that perfect sacrifice. Fully God, fully man, sinless son of God. And when Jesus was suffering on on the cross, we'll see it here in in the weeks to come, he could say at the end, it is finished. Nothing more needed to be done. He had 
he had done all that was necessary to pay for the sins of all who believe. And so if you've never looked at the death of Jesus that way as your hope, your way of salvation, I urge you to do that today. Forsake your sin. By faith, embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior. Recognize and believe that he was on that cross bearing your punishment, the punishment you deserve. But that because he did that and rose again, all who believe in him, there's, there's nothing more that needs to be done. You're forgiven. And that's why I say faith and hope. When we think of the cross, we also think of the empty tomb. We know that Christ has paid it in full, our sin debt. We know that Christ has defeated sin, death, and Satan. We know that one day Christ will return and rid this world of evil and death once and for all. And so the cross reminds us that Jesus is making all things new. That brokenness, pain, and sin will one day be put away forever. And that will be with God forever in glory. All who are in Christ. All who are united to him by faith. So that's one posture we should have is faith and hope. Second is praise and awe, right? Praise and awe. And again, I feel inadequate even saying this because I know I need to meditate on this a lot more. But when we think about the cross, we should be in awe that Almighty God would die in our place. We should be in awe that God the Father would curse His own Son, pouring out His wrath on Jesus so that we could be saved and forgiven. We should be in awe that Jesus did this willingly and out of love for us. That he willingly laid down his life and gave himself up for us. Oh, Christian, let us be in awe of the love of God, of the mercy of God. Let us be captivated by such grace. As we sing sometimes, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Let us praise God when we think of the cross. Praise him for his love. Praise him for his wisdom and power. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What does the world think of when they think of Jesus dying on the cross? Again, they don't really think about it that much most of the time. If they do, some may think, oh, that's nice, that's sentimental. Or one, some might... A lot probably don't understand, right? Or maybe think it's foolish like they did in Corinth. But when we think of the cross, we see the, the wisdom of God and that he is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. We see the power of God and that Jesus there was canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That he was setting them aside, nailing them to the cross. That he was disarming the rulers and authorities and putting them to open shame. Triumphing over them, Colossians 2 says. We love the, God's plan of salvation. The, the cross as cruel as it was, it displays the power of God, the wisdom of God, the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God. And so we stand in awe and praise. That's our posture toward the cross. 
And along with that, and this will be the last couplet I give you, joy and thanksgiving. Joy and thanksgiving. When we think of the cross, our hearts should be full of joy, full of thanksgiving. Again, we, we praise him that he's no longer there, right? We're not talking about crucifixes that show Jesus still suffering on the cross. No, his days of suffering are over. It's finished. But when we look back and think about his sacrifice, we're filled with joy and thanksgiving. Our joy in what Jesus has done for us. Thankfulness. Jesus, thank you for suffering and dying in my place. God, thank you for saving me and adopting me into your family. Thank you for forgiving me of all my sin. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a Savior. The joy in knowing that God, my creator, my final judge, loves me and has forgiven me. The joy in knowing that I'm at peace with God, that I'll be with Jesus forever, that death no longer is the final word, that death will merely usher me into his presence. One day when Jesus returns, my body itself will be raised incorruptible. Joy and thanksgiving. And I close, I guess, just with this final challenge. You know, as I was thinking through different postures and responses we should have about the cross, really, I, I trust that by God's grace and spirit, many of you, us believers, when we think about the cross, we do have those kinds of responses. But where I wonder if we don't fall short, and I know I fall short, is we just don't think about the cross enough, and meaning we don't preach the gospel to ourselves enough, right? So that's kind of my final charge to us is let's just think about it more let's remember the cross let's remember the gospel because as we've said not only just as that act in the that paid for our sins but just we continue to live by by grace alone through faith alone and christ alone and so i all these songs kept coming to my mind as you've already heard but you know that the hymn writers they seem to get that they seem to make sure they were continuing to focus on the cross when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Oh, may we never boast, right? Except in the cross of Christ Jesus. The more we focus on what God has done for us, we'll be humble. We'll, we'll remember that the grace that's been shown to us. Lest I forget Gethsemane, lest I forget thine agony, lest I forget thy love for me, lead me to Calvary. We have the opportunity to do that this morning with uh, the gift, another gift Jesus has given to his church, and that's um, celebrating the Lord's Supper. So if I could have the men come forward who are going to do that for us today. Again, it's so important for us to be preaching the gospel to ourselves, and here we, are, we have a picture of the gospel, a reminder of the gospel. Again, Christ's work is finished. There's no, there's no re-sacrificing of Jesus going on in any way. These are reminders, memorials, pointers back to what he has done for us. So um, the men are going to, in just a moment pass out the, the trays. There's two cups 
uh, stacked on each other. One, the bottom one holds the bread, the top one holds the cup, so you just need to pull one double stack out of there. Um, and, but as they pass it around, the scripture is very clear that the Lord's table should only be uh, taken by believers. It's because it is reminding us of what Jesus has done for us. It is reminding us of his, his uh, suffering and death. So if you're not a believer today, please do not take the, the bread and cup. Um, let it, just let it pass by. We're not going to embarrass you in any way, but it is important that it's only taken by believers. And as it's passed by, may um, Christians, may it just be a, a wonderful reminder to you of, of the love and grace of, of the Lord. May it be a way for us to... to uh, for God to sanctify us in having that right posture um, toward the cross.